Hello, and welcome to Pharmacological Histories, a series from the MIT Press podcast. In this series of interviews, I'll be asking authors to reflect on the social, cultural, and political histories of drug use. In the series, I'll be interviewing Mikhail Sekaris about the drugs that are used to combat leukemia. I'll also be discussing the many uses of ketamine with Peter Mogadam. And I'll be asking Andy Roberts about the man who turned Timothy Leary onto LSD. But in this, the first episode, I'll be talking to Nancy Campbell about naloxone, the drug that's used to reverse overdoses. Content warning, this interview will feature discussion of addiction, drug use and drug-related deaths. Nancy Campbell is Professor and Head of the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. She's the author of multiple books, including Using Women, Gender, Drug Policy and Social Justice, and Discovering Addiction, the Science and Politics of Substance Abuse Research. But in the following interview, she'll be discussing the research in her most recent book, OD, Naloxone and the Politics of Overdose, published in March of this year by the MIT Press. So I'm going to do a, a series of interviews with different authors at MIT about drugs and specifically the kind of social, cultural, political dimension of different substances. I'm really happy to start with this conversation because I think that's something that your book does really well. But I'm also aware that there's a lot of very complex, nuanced things that you're talking about in your book. So I thought it might be good to start really basic and ask you to explain how naloxone works uh, and what it does on a really sort of layman's level. Certainly. So naloxone is a really interesting drug because it uh, doesn't work at all. It doesn't do anything. It's largely inert unless you have an opioid in your system. And if you have an opioid sitting on the receptors in your brain, on your opiate receptors, naloxone is, has stronger affinity for those receptors and it will just come in like a golf club hitting a golf ball off a tee and it will knock the opioid off the receptors. And so given what an overdose is, an overdose is essentially your brain is not getting the message to breathe. It's respiratory depression. When naloxone comes along and knocks the opioid off the receptor, it occupies the receptor fully for a shorter period of time. And it allows you to re begin breathing again. And so naloxone is called a narcotic antagonist. And it's a really, it's a drug that's been used for a long time, since the 1970s, in emergency medicine and in anesthesia, because anesthesiologists overdose people all the time. And so naloxone is a, a daily tool that they use to bring people back from overdose. So it's pretty simple in a lot of ways. Its complexities, of course, are social, political, legal. It's an essential medicine, yet it's treated as if it's illegal in a lot of places. Um, and so it's a really interesting drug and medicine. Mm, yeah. And a little bit later on, I, I really want to ask you about those dynamics of legalized and illegalized 
context for drug usage. But also, first of all, um, I think a lot of people know, you know, most people know what an overdose is, but I think a lot of people maybe don't know which drugs you can actually overdose on or, or, or which drugs you're specifically talking about when you're talking about opioids. And could you just clarify that for people that might not be 100% sure which drugs we're talking about here? Right. So overdose is uh, a general term that's applied to a lot of different kinds of drugs that we don't think of as drugs you can overdose on. So anticoagulants, for instance, there's lots of people who die overdose deaths from anticoagulants. But what I'm talking about are opioid overdoses, and they are generally associated with heroin, with pharmaceutical opioids like hydrocodone, oxycodone, and fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid. So up until fentanyl, uh, all opioids came from the opium poppy. And that is one of the interesting underpinnings of any talk about opioids because opium poppy can only be grown in certain places. And so there's a long global history to this as a commodity. Um, fentanyl has a much shorter history, is also a global commodity, um, and is in about oh, close to 95% of the U.S. heroin supply and increasingly in other places. So a lot of uh, countries, unlike the U.K., right, which has historically had access to high-grade heroin, fentanyl is usually available in places that don't have that kind of a heroin market. And so it's a um, narcotic is what is reversed by a narcotic antagonist. And narcotics is a very general category, uh, but it generally refers to all opioids. One thing you do in the introduction, you draw a comparison as well between um, the necessity for kind of drugs like this and industrialization, which is something I thought was quite interesting, you know, kind of industrial accidents uh, and, you know, conflict, military conflict is another kind of industrialization. I thought that was a really interesting connection to draw. Okay, so you touched on it there briefly at the beginning that naloxone, it was approved in the, seven, the early 70s, the start of the 70s, because surgeons would quite, you know, it's quite easy to overdose someone, relatively easy to overdose someone in a surgery. And so how does this transition from a, a medicalized tool, how does a substance like that then get adopted and used in response to people overdosing? I'm really interested to hear you draw connections with the AIDS epidemic as well, a little bit. Right, so... Uh, the book basically tells the story of how naloxone goes from a drug that is really locked within a medical enclave. And um, it also interestingly tells the story of emergency medicine, which was relatively young um, in the United States and to some degree in the UK as well. And um, naloxone was approved in 1971. It was synthesized in the early 1960s um, but the pharmaceutical company that got the patent on naloxone didn't really see a market for it. And so there wasn't really um, much exploration of it. And there was another drug called nalorphine, which was out um, on the market. And it was used in emergency medicine. It was only used inside of hospitals. It never made it out onto the streets. And naloxone didn't either, really until the 1990s. And really in the context of the social movement, 
that arose in response to HIV AIDS and began to say, wait a second, harm reduction. Let's think about how do we reduce uh, bloodborne virus transmission uh, once it was established that intravenous drug users were also transmitting HIV. Um, there began to be an exploration of, well, could we uh, perhaps reduce that if through needle and syringe exchange? And it was illegal in the United States. Needle exchanges were underground projects in the United States. They were illegal, quite unlike uh, what happened really in the UK, where you had harm reduction infused a little bit more into your healthcare system. We did not have that in the United States. And so the United States harm reduction movement had to be very shall we say, in the streets, in your face kind of a movement. That meant that naloxone, um, it took a long time for people to realize that they could do something with naloxone, not until the mid-1990s, and really the late 1990s, did this social movement within the United States begin to realize we could actually give naloxone out to people, teach them how to use it, and to people who are likely to witness an overdose. Now, meanwhile, in Australia and in the UK, there was naloxone access advocacy for what was called take-home naloxone, or THN, principally by Sir John Strang, uh, who works at King's College London. And it's important to realize that advocacy when it comes from a social movement is a bit different from advocacy when it comes from professions. And so there was a kind of tense relationship, I would say, but also a kind of merging between the professionalized advocates and the social movement advocates. And so there was a long dance we could say it, call it, between advocates in the United States, like Dan Big was, I would say, uh, one of the chief advocates in the United States, working with the Chicago Recovery Alliance, who began to give naloxone out to people, rather than waiting for permission to give naloxone out to people. Now, doctors could prescribe naloxone, but the fact is they didn't. Even if they knew somebody was a drug user, an opioid user, even if they knew that they had someone prescribed high-dose opioids for cancer pain or terminal illness, they didn't give naloxone out. And a lot of our overdose deaths in the United States are deaths of people who are taking opioids as prescribed. And that is something that many people don't really, didn't really realize. And so naloxone has had many lives. I jokingly say that it has had nine lives in the book because it's always a realization that comes to people who are cancer patients or terminally ill and their family members realizing, oh yes, I need naloxone because I run a high risk of overdose I am not, quote, an addict. We use the term person with addictions as a result of that social movement, persons with AIDS, right? We use that term, and yet there are still a lot of stereotypes that are projected onto addicts. And so people 
didn't want to see themselves as addicted or, quote, as an addict. And so that really meant that co-prescription of naloxone, it took so long. I mean, one of the big mysteries of this book is why an essential medicine like naloxone, why did it take so long for it to get to the people who need it most? Yeah, I just want to pick up on a term that you use there and is a very popular term is the the term of harm reduction. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about where that term comes from and, and what that attitude encompasses for people that might not be familiar with it. Yeah, in the uh, an interview that I did with the former director of NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse in the U.S., member, part of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, he called harm reduction a dirty word. And it really was a dirty word in the United States, almost up until the early 2000s. It was that the term itself had much more provenance in Europe, in the UK, in Australia than it did in the US. And again, because of that that history, I would say, of the U.S. attempting to kind of lead the global prohibition regime, where abstinence only is the only way. That kind of drug policy basis made it very difficult for the people who were really called by the harm reduction movement in the U.S. to get get that up and going. And so the term itself has this very problematic history in the U.S. context, whereas in the rest of the world, it is used in a much less, it has much less of a a, a provocation embedded in it. Whereas in the U.S., you say harm reduction, and it's kind of like, you know, you're calling everyone to the ramparts. Now we have much more acceptance of harm reduction as part of public health, as part, even part of healthcare. Uh, but in the UK, you were able to get it infused into the healthcare system. You have harm reduction nurses. I had never heard of a harm reduction pharmacist until I was in, in Scotland. And so it's beginning now to have that kind of traction in the US. But the principles of harm reduction are actually very practical. They're very much what are the local, what are the personal steps you can take to reduce harmful consequences in this case of of drug use, of opioid use. And naloxone has now become, I think at first, I would say needle exchange, needle and syringe exchange were the paradigmatic harm reduction methods. Now I think naloxone's part of that. Naloxone is now seen as, oh, okay, this is something that you want to have on hand to prevent the most harmful harm of all death. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you use a term like pragmatic. And I actually had that in my notes when I was writing about and you kind of touched on it there when you talk about a kind of prohibition attitude that's really like prevalent in the US. And it seems like a lot of drug policy is it's based on a kind of judgment. And what's really interesting about the people in your book is that they kind of move past judgment in a lot of circumstances. Um, And I think some people see that as a bit of a kind of like, you know, soft and cuddly, let's all hold hands. But actually, it's a hugely pragmatic attitude. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why it's not just an ethical or moral or, or, or emotional stance. It's actually really pragmatic. And I was hoping you could explain to people why that is. Yeah, so I, I think that the affective and emotional 
tone of harm reduction is really important to the movement moving. People who use drugs are meet with such uh, judgmentalism on so many levels, uh, from people they love, from family members, from close friends. I talk about naloxone as a technology of solidarity in the book, and that is partly because solidarity, right, the idea that someone accepts you who, for who you are, that is something that is uh, picked up intangibly. To know that someone cares about you to the extent that they organize uh, harm reduction and they show up day after day, week after week, and make sure that you're okay and that you have your basic needs met. I think that's what harm reduction is, and I think that is the opposite of what most people who use drugs encounter they encounter a really alienating and isolating uh, society in a lot of ways. And so as drug treatment has been able to migrate towards harm reduction, it's become more effective. And so that's where the pragmatism comes in. When you start looking at, all right, I'm having better results if I am, that's not just being warmer and kinder and gentler, that's actually affecting outcomes and results in ways that you weren't doing before you adopted that attitude. Public health has been pretty, can can be morally judgmental. It can be delivered in morally judgmental ways. And we have many historical examples of public health measures that people refuse to accept and take up because it was delivered uh, with a kind of, I am better than you, Uh, hierarchy. This is what you should do. This is what you must do. Harm reductionists uh, kind of turned that on its head. And so no wonder public health advocates didn't jump on the harm reduction bandwagon at first, because it really conflicted with what they were doing. It was closer to social work and some of the principles of social work that were embedded in harm reduction practices. But again, not the kind of social work that tends towards public health. And so there are some real contradictions, I would say, between these ways of organizing healthcare. And it's no wonder that people pick up on them and feel them. And maybe people don't know the whole history of public health or the whole history of harm reduction, but they can tell Right. People can tell if you're morally judgmental, if you're condemning their behavior, if you're displacing them, if you are, you know, removing them from public parks or taking all the benches away or or installing hostile architecture so that they cannot rest. Um, Right. All of those kinds of things are the opposite of harm reduction. And so I think it's a really interesting it's it's a worldview. It's a shift in your worldview. What would be really great is to talk a little bit about what harm reduction activities actually look like and what are some of the ways in which people are organising and using this drug. You touched on it a little bit and spoke about needle exchanges and training people to use it, but in communities where there are these crises of people overdosing, how are people organising themselves and what, what do they do? Right, so harm reduction is very... It has a local flavor. 
And so it's organized a bit differently in different places. So in San Francisco or Seattle, where there's a kind of organized harm reduction infrastructure already in place that was assembled over years, usually in cooperation with law enforcement, with the city, with the municipality. Oftentimes there are uh, healthcare practitioners involved, um, usually on site, right? So those are really different from the smaller cities and the, you know, my I live in a small city and uh, harm reduction takes place not all the time, but in a sort of a weekly schedule, usually through needle exchange, right? Because people are beginning, but now you see harm reduction that addresses lots of different kinds of basic needs, right? needs for uh, food, right? You see harm reduction organizations that have community gardens, urban sustainable agriculture. You see harm reduction organizations that have organized art projects, murals that are very involved with Black Lives Matter, that are very involved with whatever the issues are within their communities, whatever the potential expressions are within their communities. And so these places kind of look like, uh, you know, tents and encampments where supplies are given out. They kind of look like a farmer's market. They are becoming much more meeting grounds, common grounds. And of course, because of their clientele, they, you know, are often organized in a way to make sure that people's basic needs are being met. And so there's a little bit more presence, I would say now, of people who can link you up with housing. Uh, so sometimes they take place in uh, homeless healthcare settings. Uh, so it really varies quite a bit, but it varies according to uh, the local needs and the local character. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Black Lives Matter there. And um I think a lot of people's way into these conversations is through kind of like news cycle. Very complex things tend to get boxed up. And for some people, those boxes look like the war on drugs, quote unquote, and the opioid crisis, quote unquote. Uh, and both of those things are hugely intertwined with racism. And I was wondering how you think through those issues and how you, you think about the gain in traction or the gain of attention about things like the opioid crisis when issues surrounding narcotics that have affected black and brown communities have often not attracted the same attention. Yeah, it's really interesting. I have a little bit, because I'm a historian, I have a little bit longer time frame. And so I have seen the racialization of drug policy and the effects on people change quite a bit. I've been studying this for the past 30 years myself. And there was certainly, there were a lot of white people. In fact, it was majority white in the 19th century and through the middle of the 20th century. And in the mid 20th century after World War II, we began to see in the United States, and this is really different from the UK. The book compares both, but the histories are really different there. In the United States after World War II, we began to see 
urban communities of color, we began to see heroin markets spring up in urban communities of color that had not really been there before. And so we begin to see a kind of racialization at the same time as we begin to see criminalization. Mandatory minimum sentences are put in in the early 1950s. And you, across that decade, you see penalties increase. And so for me, the war on drugs started in the 1950s and not in the 1970s. It really begins when you know, Eisenhower announces a war on narcotic addiction in 1954. And that war became endemic in black and brown communities, urban communities of color. That war from the 1950s becomes endemic and becomes and is there to this day, right? And so black and brown communities have had a lot of experience with opiates as a result of that moment. You begin to see overdose in the late 60s and through the 1970s beginning to become an issue in black and brown communities particularly. And so I have a more, what should I say, multi-layered view because that's also when mass incarceration, the seeds of mass incarceration are sown in the 1970s when New York State in particular, California, other places begin to incarcerate drug users and traffickers for longer periods of time. And so mass incarceration in so many ways begins in in that moment. So I think it's really important for us to understand this history, the racialization of the opioid crisis as if it was white, built upon that endemic black and brown opioid crisis that was already installed in the previous era. And then in 2013 or so, the rise in fentanyl overdose deaths in the African-American community, that's when you begin to see rising overdose deaths in black and brown communities in the United States, is fentanyl in 2013. And so now we have a crisis that the media has very much portrayed as white. And there's been very good analysis out there of the whiteness and the produced whiteness of the opioid overdose crisis. But in my book, I try to be very careful and to tell that longer story because it was really never the case that black and brown communities were not affected. Now, drug policy changes all the time. And so I don't, it changes and yet it is locked in place by a regime that has been harder to change and is only slowly beginning to change. So it has this kind of rapid fire and yet obdurate quality to it. Drug, global drug policy and particularly the U.S. hegemony over global drug policy has prevented change, uh, prevented experimentation of the kind that I'm talking about in the book uh, with harm reduction, for instance. And so now I think we are at a point where uh, we do need to really see the way in which criminalization and medicalization work together. Criminalization has often targeted black and brown communities, medicalization has tended to target white communities. Why is that? Racism is a good answer. And the institutionalization of that kind of racism is a good answer to why 
medicalization and criminalization occur with different targets. But the fact is that since the 1950s, there's been convergence between those two processes. And pharmaceuticals, like opioids, are really a place where that's what you see. You see the convergence between criminalization and medicalization, and you see the differential effects on different communities. But the fact is they work together to produce the untenable situation that we are now in. Yeah, the dichotomy of kind of medicalized, criminalized. I'm thinking about the activists and organizers in your book, and I'm thinking about how often we think about there's a kind of binary opposition for a lot of people between a drug user and a medical expert or a addict and an activist or a a drug dealer and a first responder. Um, And I think a lot of people don't want to complicate those categories or they don't want to, and similarly with certain drugs, if it's medicalized, safe, take it, great, whatever, illegal, don't take it, stay away from it. If you take it, you're a bad person. And I guess I want to ask you about how important it is that those categorizations get complicated. And and also the kind of follow-on from that question is maybe a little bit more existential, but in a in a long-term sense, how how important is it that people that have previously been addicted to drugs can take those traumatic experiences and give them meaning in the activism that they do as a means by long-term transforming those communities? Could you speak about that a little bit? Well, that's a lot to speak about. Uh, Yes, I can. Uh, Though people want to keep people assigned to categories. Uh, The one I've thought a lot about is the way law enforcement wants to think that dealers are separate from users, that traffickers are separate from addicts. And uh, to not recognize the complexities the economic complexities of the economy that they are dealing with. And so that was that really came to a head for me when I was having a conversation with a DEA agent who talked about how terrible it was that dealers were giving out naloxone, that, you know, it was almost like dealers are becoming harm reduction activists and giving naloxone to their customers. And to me, that seems like a very hopeful thing. I think that everyone should have naloxone if they are using an opioid or even if they're using a methamphetamine that has fentanyl in it, right? People should have naloxone and having dealers give them out or having police distribute naloxone or uh, sheriffs carry naloxone. That all seems like a good thing to me. And so I think that those categories help people keep intact their worldviews, which um, are usually more complex than they want to acknowledge. There are usually more exceptions to the rules that we have about how particular people should behave. This is often very complicated when you add identities like um, mothering or parenting, right, to people who are using drugs. Then you begin to see there are a lot of complexities here. Why are people doing what they're doing? People don't always know why they're doing what they're doing. And so for a historian like myself, who's, I'm really a historian of the present, and I'm really interested in how the current moment, the complexity of the current moment has been produced over time. And so I'm really interested in those 
multi-layered and I would even say intersectional identities of all of the people. It, it makes it hard sometimes to write short books. This is a longer book because I do try to be careful about how I'm uh, talking about people who many of whom are still alive and many of whom have very complicated motivations for entering the sector. I do think harm reduction is a really important identity that comes about when people are in long-term recovery. There used to be a lot of confusion about whether people who are in long-term recovery could also be harm reductionists, because doesn't that, isn't that a clash of worldviews? Uh, doesn't that mean that they recognize that people are still using drugs, right? They're not abstinence only. And I think that there are much more forgiving and much more humane and compassionate identities that have now evolved in the recovery community because now you begin to see this complex cross-fertilization really between recovery and harm reduction. Yeah and I guess it comes back to that place of trying to operate in a way that moves beyond judgment where you to admit someone else's complexity is is to see them as a as a subject instead of just a kind of problem or a you know a kind of lost cause. I mean, obviously, you know, we're all living through a really weird pandemic. Uh, I'm recording this sat in my office for the first time in I think like four or five months. My personal feeling is that there's a there's a lot of crises that are kind of coming to a fruition at the moment, whether they be financial, ecological, racial. Maybe that's a slightly different kind of phenomena. But I, I wanted to ask if there are, what kind of lessons can be drawn from the response to the, these, the, the crisis of the overdose uh, in these other kind of crises? Uh, you know, how, how can these grassroots decentralised um, responses, what can they offer when we start to think about these other problems? Yeah, naloxone is a really interesting way in. Overdose is a really interesting way into that, in part because I would say as a science and technology studies scholar, naloxone is a technological fix, right? It's never enough. You have to have a whole socio-cultural system. You have to have a material and social way of delivering naloxone in order to have it ever be uh, sufficient. So in this moment, right, we have a pandemic that has increased social isolation and you have a harm reduction movement that says never use alone because naloxone is ineffective if you're using alone. You can't administer naloxone to yourself if you're in an overdose situation unless you realize it way ahead of time and you're highly motivated. You really can't do that. You really have to have someone else there with you. And so in my own county, there was a week in March when there were twice the number of overdose deaths as there were COVID-related deaths. And that's because people can't help each other out. Uh, they're not in the same place at the same time. And so I think we really have had in the present moment to really think about, in a way, the existential and imaginative kinds of ways in which we should be organizing mutual aid and the ways in which we can think, I think harm reduction 
does that really well, right? Harm reduction is a global social movement. People know one another all over the world. Drug using is a global social movement, right? Drug users recognize one another and have trust with one another. And I think it all really comes down to that, the kind of socio-material organization of trust. Who are you going to trust in this moment? In a way, we have a pandemic that's really disrupted the usual ways that we trust one another. I mean, even if we have masks on, right, we have, I have difficulty recognizing people, who exactly they are, even people I know with the masks on, you can't see facial expressions, right? All of our usual ways of ascertaining trust are kind of disrupted by this particular pandemic. And I think that, you know, harm reduction as a social movement is a way of assuring trust. You know that if you go to your, I mean, to tell you the truth, drug users have networks of trust with dealers and with people within their community. They have had to hide uh, stigmatized behavior. And so they have established, you know, ways of doing that. And I think that at the moment, it's very um, important to listen to harm reduction and to listen for, all right, so how do communities come together? What are the technologies of solidarity around which communities form? If it's naloxone, uh, it, could, it could be, I mean, there are, we have many technologies of solidarity. Naloxone was simply one that allowed me to tell a story um, about the way in which it, it came to be uh, central to this political social movement. The last thing I'm gonna ask you is, I doubt there'll be anyone listening to this who will completely reject any idea of a slightly more progressive drug policy by virtue of it being a, a podcast for an academic press. And also, you know, they've listened to the end, so they haven't got that wound up. Uh, but, you know, there, there might be someone who who's listening who, who doesn't think it's hugely important. Maybe they don't have any direct relationships with anyone who uses drugs in a way that damages their day-to-day -day life, or, you know, they, perhaps they don't know anyone who's overdosed. And they think that, you know, these kind of things that, well, I don't know, it sounds kind of, optimistic and but maybe that's not where government money should be spent yada 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 what what would you say to someone to kind of bring them around to this kind of attitude or, or kind of sell them into the the harm reduction movement as it were well i would have to um take them along a little bit of a trail of the war on drugs has uh generally failed even if you look at it in terms of price right we've got more, better quality, lower priced heroin and other opioids out there now than we did when we started. So it's clear, and it's clear that um, mass incarceration is a really expensive way to do social policy. And so between the two, right, between the, um, the market dynamics of illicit economies and the war on drugs, i.e. the mass incarceration, you also have to really kind of look at the pharmaceutical industry and what's happening to pharmaceutical opioids as well, right? So as we have more lower cost uh, pharmaceutical opioids on the market, as soon as we tried to tighten up on those and get 
uh, physicians to stop prescribing them, get pharmacies to report how much they were selling, uh, distributing, then uh, the more people turn to the illicit market. And so these markets are clearly interlinked. They are clearly functioning together. We can't really address the dynamics in one without addressing the effects of the other. And so it seems to me like anyone who wanted to claim that drug policy, that the war on drugs has been successful, would really have to be evaluated in terms of their sanity. Because if we could have produced a worse problem, I don't know how we could have done it, right? Accounting, I mean, prior to the pandemic, you know, it accounted for a very large share of completely preventable deaths among people who are younger. In the U.S., it was people in their 40s and 50s who were the majority of people who were dying from overdose prior to the pandemic. And so I really think people would have to agree that uh, we should do something different. And harm reduction was a movement of people who said, we agree, we should do something different. And here are some concrete steps that we can take to do something different. Let's scale that up. Let's build a harm reduction infrastructure. We haven't really done that, right? We, we, we have nickeled and dimed. Maybe you have a different expression in the UK, but we have, we have nickeled and dimed harm reduction. And so people have had to really function without full support, without full funding. And so they might be able to do a better job if they had more support. And if they had, you know, so suddenly in the last, I would say, five to seven years, uh, state governments in the United States have begun to realize, yeah, we should give out naloxone. Yes, we should purchase bulk naloxone and make sure that people get Naloxone. Wouldn't it be better uh, to to have more support for that rather than you know always having to kind of take it out of your back pocket? So I think that uh, yeah, the the time for change in drug policy has come. It is beginning to change. There are experiments in how to change it, uh, but that will usually mean experiments with markets. It will usually mean experiments that. Uh, merge these two markets that have functioned separately, the illicit and the licit uh, markets. Uh, it, it, it will mean a recognition, really, of the complex and multi-layered nature of these markets. Amazing. That's a, a really great place to leave it, if that's, if that's okay with you. Yeah, good. I hope, I hope so. I hope <laughs> I can give you this file. Oh, <laughs> that was no, that was really great. Thank you so much for chatting to me today. That's been I'm really excited to share this episode with people. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacological Histories from the MIT Press Podcast. Thank you to Kristen Galano for providing the soundtrack and to Samantha Doyle who edits and mixes the podcast together. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us grow our audience, Please do share the podcast with other people who might like it. Subscribe, like, and rate the podcast on whatever medium you're using. If you have any thoughts or suggestions for the podcast, please feel free to reach out via info at mitpress.org.uk. Thank you.